All right. Good morning, church. You glad to be here this morning? It's good to be together. We have a lot to celebrate. The sun is out. Amen. Beautiful. Did you notice the coffee's back out there in the foyer? Okay. There is a God because we survived 15 months without coffee. There is a God in heaven. And it's good to be together in here. Great to have you tuning in out there. If you were around this week and even remotely tuned in, you know that on Thursday morning, the CDC announced that, it, that masks are now optional, both indoors and outdoors, for people who are fully vaccinated. And that's good news, right? That's good news. And then our, our governor subsequently got on and did a news conference where she acknowledged the same. But uh, true to form with all of these announcements, they always seem to happen as close to the weekend as possible. So no one can get ready to respond to them, right? And so what we're, what's going to happen here at River West is our leadership's gathering this week. And we're going to come up with sort of our language and our strategy for all this. And we can't wait to share with you where we're headed with all of that good news. Uh, so look for that information in the week to come. But right now what we're going to do is the most important thing we could do, which is what? Talk back to me. What are we going to do? Open our Bibles. Amen. Will you grab your Bible and open to the book of Luke chapter 22? You have one day left on earth and you've gathered together with the people that are closest to you for a final evening of fellowship, what would you talk about? What would you say to them? There they are. Just picture your people. And they're in the room. And you have an opportunity to share parting words, final thoughts. Maybe you would say the stuff that went unsaid for too long in your life. Maybe you would say words of blessing over them. I think of Jacob in Genesis 49 who pulled all of his children in a room on his deathbed and he said a blessing over each one. Maybe you would offer words of wisdom. Maybe you would try to seek reconciliation with someone, right? But here's the thing I want you to know. That, this, that's the context of Luke 22. Did you know this? It's Christ's final day. It's his last supper. You know, we call it the last supper for a reason. It was actually the last supper. All right? It's literal. It was his last supper. It was his farewell address. It was his opportunity to share his parting words with the people that were closest to him. And in that moment, in his final moment with them, Jesus chose to focus on two topics, power and rejection. Just think about it. Power and rejection. He had already instituted the Lord's Supper. He had predicted his death and resurrection. They know what's going to happen. And now in this final moment, in this farewell address, he turns to his disciples and he says, I've got to prepare you for what's happening next. And in that moment, in his farewell address, Jesus chose to focus on the things that he thought would be the most important things for them to hear about. And those topics were power and rejection. Or he could say intense opposition. And his message was simple. 
He said, I want you to handle power and rejection in a way that marks you out as different in this world. The way the church handles power and rejection will tell you how closely connected we are to the way of Jesus. The way that disciples handle power and rejection and opposition marks them out. It ought to mark them out as different. It was true then for this first band of disciples, and it's true today. And so we look at it with me, Luke 22. We left off in verse 24. Eric preached a marvelous sermon last Sunday. Wasn't that incredible on the Lord's Supper? And it was so great. And here we pick up where Eric left off, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you, rather Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who stayed with me in my trials and I assigned to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We'll stop there in a moment. I'll read the rest of our passage today. But one of the advantages of preaching through the scriptures, sort of verse by verse, which is what we do primarily here at River West, is you're forced to deal with individual moments in their context. A moment like this, this argument that breaks out. Now, if we weren't teaching verse by verse, we could take this moment and we could lift it out of its context and somebody could preach a really neat lesson about leadership in the kingdom of God and it would all be true and it would all be wonderful. But what makes this moment so incredible is the context in which it happens. Think about it. You have to sort of get into the room. Jesus has just told his disciples, I'm gonna be tortured I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. He's instituted the Lord's Supper. And he said to them, one of you sitting at this table who's taking his bread and dipping it in the same cup is about to betray me. And for some reason, in that moment, the disciples decide to get in an argument about who's the greatest. And we can laugh at them, but it's like it's human nature, isn't it? But you think, how in the world did they get to this? And look at the immediate context. Look at the verse right before verse 23. Jesus has said, look, one of you is going to betray me, and they don't know who it is. So look what they do in verse 23. They began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. They don't even know that it's Judas. So they start out questioning one another, and then somehow that little conversation devolves into a dispute about who's the greatest. And you think, unbelievable, unbelievable. How did they get here? And Jesus cannot resist the opportunity then to talk about something that matters deeply to him, the true way of power. 
So we have so much to learn from this moment. And what I want to do is I just want to point out a couple of things you should really notice about this dispute. Look very closely at verse 24. Notice first, this dispute is significant because it impacts the unity of this community. Now think about this. It tears at their unity. And misunderstandings about power always do. They always do. This was a dispute. That word means a full-on argument. It means to be contentious. It's actually the word philonikia. It means the love of strife. It means to enter into a debate and you actually are trying to create strife. This is not just a lighthearted debate about things that don't matter. Coffee or tea, you know. Michael Jordan or LeBron James, who's the greatest? Lighthearted debate, right? Cats or dogs, ducks or beavers. We won't even go there because we already know the answer to that, right? I, I, had a, I had a guy email me this week and he was like, do you remember when the most divisive thing in the church was ducks or beavers? Ah, the good old days, right? Okay, because power, debates about power always become divisive. And it's broken my heart as a pastor. Think about it. So much division that happens when we don't understand the heart of Jesus, the way of Jesus, when it comes to power. And Jesus says, think about it. He's there. He's with his disciples. He could have talked about countless things, but he said, I want to make sure that you handle power in this world in a way that demonstrates that you know me. Here's the second observation. This dispute is significant because it impacts the witness of the community. So it can impact the unity of the community, but think about this. It can impact the witness of the community. The reputation of the gospel is at stake, and Jesus knows it. Jesus is very concerned about his people looking like the world when it comes to power. And so he says, in essence, don't do power the way the world does power. It's imperative that you not look like the world. Do you see this verse 25, what he says? The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. He says in the world, it's about, it's about authoritarianism. The way the world uses power is it's always about control. It's that tendency towards compulsion to oppress, to manipulate, to bend people's wills towards your own. You don't have to think long, and neither do I, to think of examples in our world, in politics, in the commerce, in business, in organizations. The way of the world when it comes to power is about oppression, exercising lordship. It's almost like it's just human nature long for that, to crave for that. I remember when the girls were little. Lauren was seven, Bridget was four, and they loved Playmobil. 
You know what Playmobil are? They're kind of like little Lego. They're little figurines. And they would set up these massive empires with dozens and dozens of Playmobil characters. And I would walk upstairs and I would, and I would observe power dynamics at work between my seven-year-old and my four-year-old. And I would say to Bridget, so Bridget, in this kingdom, who are you responsible for? And she would say, Lauren only gave me this one little princess. And then I would say, Lauren, who are you responsible? And she would say, I'm responsible for the whole kingdom. It was like her little fiefdom and she was in charge, all right? It's human nature. But Jesus says, wait a minute. It is so critical that in the church, you don't do power the way the world does it. Friends, the reputation of the gospel is at stake. And that's why Jesus cares about it. I continue to have two concerns when it comes to the church, universal, and our relationship to power. Two ongoing threats, okay? The first is the temptation towards power through politics. And the second is the temptation towards power through relevance. And I, want you, I just want you to think about this with me for just a minute. They're both temptations. And they both run the risk of doing power the way the world does power. Power through politics. Now, I don't have to, you, you already know what I'm talking about here. This is, this is the, the way of, it's the temptation to the view the church's public engagement as a struggle for dominance. We're fighting for power. We're fighting to not lose power. And it's a temptation to view the world as two opposing sides who are in this epic battle and there's going to be winners and losers and we don't want to be the losers. It's the epic conflict for the soul of our nation with only two groups. Only one can emerge victoriously with politics as the way to fight to keep power. And the question is, is a warlike posture the way of Jesus? A warlike posture. So that's, that's one threat. That's one temptation. But there's another one. It's the temptation of power through relevance. For many Christians, there is power and relevance. This is the temptation for the church to have a platform, to be cool, to be relevant, to be in touch, to have a massive impact, to idolize celebrity pastors with massive Instagram feeds, with lots of books that they've written. It's the embarrassment that people might feel if the church doesn't feel relevant or cool. I, a lot of this is the result of our social media age. And it does tend to be, though not always, the temptation of younger Christians who might find that sometimes they're, they're finding they're embarrassed that the church isn't more in touch, more relevant, more cool. But is this the way of Jesus? Was Jesus relevant? Was Jesus hip? Was Jesus cool? Did Jesus have a massive platform? Or did Jesus take the way of hiddenness? Downward mobility. Humility. It is a form of power, but it's power through weakness. 
It's power through irrelevance. I would like to propose today that we change the name of our church to Irrelevant Church. How does that sound? Irrelevant Church, okay? That's a good name, right? Because it matters. And I'm being dead serious. This matters, folks. The reputation of the gospel is at stake. And Jesus says, you have to think about this, my friend. You gotta pray about this because you're gonna be tempted And you say, well, this doesn't apply to me, pastor, because I don't have any power. Wrong. Everyone has power in some relationship. At work, as a parent, in a relationship, in an organization. You don't have to think long before you realize in in this one relationship, I've got some power. And you will be tempted to do power the way the world does power. One third observation here, this is the critical one. This dispute is significant because it reveals a significant departure from the core values of their leader. That's really what's happening here. I mean, think about it. Jesus is sitting there talking about the Lord's Supper, talking about what he's gonna do. And his closest friends, they've been with him for years and they get into an argument that demonstrates just how far away they have come from the heart of Jesus. Jesus had a very radical definition of leadership. Did you know that? Radical definition of leadership. Look at it, verse 26. He said to them, The kings of the Gentiles, this is 25, exercise lordship. And then verse 26, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And I'll just stop really quick. In in this ancient um, Near Eastern culture, young people always served the older people. Amen. Isn't that an amazing concept? Somehow that got flipped in my household. I don't know how it works, but I serve and the young teenage daughter who will go unnamed because I didn't ask for permission to talk about this. I don't want to buy her. I don't want to buy her an outfit at Nordstrom. But anyway, that's, it got flipped, right? But younger people in this culture serve the older people and Jesus flips that around. He says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And the leaders as the one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines a table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines a table? But I am among you as the one who serves. If you were to look up the word leadership in Jesus' dictionary, do you know what it would say? It would say, see serving. (laughs) See serving. Servant leadership. That's how Jesus defines it. It's the Greek word diakonos. It's one who serves tables. Think of a server at a restaurant, except in this culture, it wasn't always restaurants. It was house parties and homes, but it was that person who's serving. And Jesus says, take that imagery, someone who serves the table. And Jesus says, oh, but see, that's how I define leadership. And did you know that's the most often used term in the scriptures for leadership in the church? A servant. 
1 Corinthians 3, 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. 1 Corinthians 4, 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Ephesians 3, verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a servant. See, that word minister is the word diakonos. It's the word servant. A servant according to the gift of God's grace over and over and over. In the kingdom of God, leaders who do not serve aren't actually leaders. Because for Jesus, leading is serving. Leadership in the church, leadership in the home, it has nothing to do with the rocks or size of power. A true leader in the imprint of Jesus knows that people are not the objects of her power, her control, but the focus of her serving. And to drive the point home, Jesus offers this illustration. And he says, think about it. When you're, when you're there in the room and there's different kinds of people, some of them are reclining at the table and some of them are scurrying around, bringing plates, bringing wine. And Jesus says, who is the greater person in that scenario? And everyone would have known immediately. They all would have said, the one reclining at the table. That's the person who's important. That's the person who's the leader. That's the person with power. And Jesus says, I agree with you, but here's my question. Why then am I among you as the servant? And then here's the crazy connection. Now, did you know that in John's account of this, John adds a moment where Jesus gets up from the table, wraps a towel around his waist. Do you remember this? And he pulls out a basin of water and he goes to each of his disciples and he begins to wash their feet. And I have a, I have a, a suspicion that it happened right in this moment because it was the perfect illustration you got the people lounging and you got the people serving and we all know who's the greatest. But wait a minute, why? Jesus said at one point, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And then Jesus stands and he begins to wash their feet. And he says, that's my definition of leadership right there. How you use power in the world. And it is powerful. So think about this. Go to that moment. Jesus teaching. Jesus washing their feet. So we might think, well, that's, there's no power being unleashed there. Wrong. I would argue that is one of the single greatest unleashings of gospel power that you could ever see in that moment as Jesus washed the disciples' feet. So powerful, a true use of power. You see, the way of Jesus is not to say, avoid power, reject power, you know, abdicate power. No, if you just, if we avoid power and we don't use power, we'll just open up a vacuum for tyrants to come in. Jesus says, what, what you need to do is you need to be transformed in your heart by the way of Christ so that you'll begin to use power the way I use it not to control, coerce, manipulate, but to bless and to serve and to bring grace into people's life. 
We have so many servant leaders in our church that I feel humble to even stand here and think about it. I think of my friend Gregor Ralston. I didn't ask Gregor for permission to talk about him, so I have to take him to Nordstrom and buy him an outfit today. But, uh, but um, I, I was meeting with Gregor, and Gregor's on our staff, and if you've walked in the foyer, you've met Gregor. Gregor is, runs our, a lot of our operations and our office, and he's a servant leader. And I was meeting with Gregor this week and we were talking about sort of the future and as the office reopens and he, he got so excited about the office reopening. And I was like, you are an odd human being, Gregor. I love you though. And he, he was, you know what he said to me? He goes, I just, Adam, I just love. And he kind of got emotional. He said, I love helping people. I just love it. I thought, that's the way of Jesus. I want to grow up to be like Gregor. How about you? Friends, let's use power the way Jesus taught us to do it. Now, from here, Jesus turns his attention from power to a different theme. It's the theme of rejection. So we look back now with me at Luke, and I'm not going to take as long with this one. We don't have as much time, but luckily, you can go back and read the verses I'm about to read and study it a little more deeply. But here's what Jesus wants to do next. He wants to prepare the disciples for the intense opposition they're going to face from a spiritual enemy and from an unbelieving world. Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I love Peter, man. He, he, Peter is like ready, fire, aim over and over. I'll go to the grave with you. And Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And then he said to the disciples, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Jesus is referring back to one of the missionary journeys when he sent him out. And he said, don't go, don't go prepared. Don't take a knapsack. Don't even take extra clothing. People will provide for you. And they said, we lack nothing. And he said to them, now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And you're thinking, what? Jesus is telling the disciples to buy weapons? <laughs> In modern Portland Day culture, this would be like, sell your puffy coat and buy an ax, all right? Your, your Patagonia puffy coat. But in them, it was a cloak and a, okay, and a sword. For I tell you that this scripture must not be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. The disciples come to dinner with concealed weapons. All right. And they're setting swords on the table. And Jesus says, 
enough. In the Greek, that's just one word, enough. Enough. Okay. This passage, there's a lot to talk about because you're thinking the sifting of Satan and Jesus telling his disciples to buy a sword. What is going on here? I can summarize it in three words, okay? Three words. Expect intense opposition. Expect it. That is the reality of representing the message of Jesus in a fallen world. Expect rejection. Expect resistance. It's going to be hard. Jesus has said, remember the good old days when, we, when, when I sent you out and I said, you don't need anything? And they were like, yeah, that was amazing. He was like, it's not going to be like that anymore. Now you need to go prepared. You need to be ready. Expect rejection. The sifting of Satan represents the spiritual reality behind the hostility of our world towards the gospel. And the two swords on the table represent the temptation to turn to worldly ways and worldly means when we face it. Jesus said, Simon, I'm telling you, Satan asked to sift you like wheat. It's this really intense metaphor. And the purpose of it is to say, Simon, what you're about to face, I want to make sure you understand, this is more than just resistance of the flesh, even the temptation of your own flesh to deny me. There's more going on here. There's something happening behind the scenes. We have a spiritual enemy, and he's actually asked for you to sift you. That was, it came from the world of agriculture where, where you would sift the chaff from the wheat. And Peter says, Simon, Satan has asked to do that to you and to all of the disciples and to you and I. And Jesus says, how will you survive this? One way. He says, I've prayed for you. I prayed for you. Can I tell you something, friends? As long as Jesus is praying for you and I, we will make it through. Amen. Amen. Where's the strength come? Did, did Peter muster strength to get through these moments of temptation? Absolutely not. Jesus was praying for him, praying for his recovery, praying that he would not abandon ship, praying that he would come out of this and it would actually be used in his life to make him a better leader. Jesus knew, Peter, you have to have a near-death experience. You actually need to be sifted so that a lot of things will be filtered out and you'll be a stronger, more dependent leader. Sometimes Jesus doesn't pray that trials won't come your way. He prays that you'll have strength to make it through them. And me too. For my own good. But these swords on the table, they, they tell us that the disciples totally understood Jesus. He's speaking metaphorically, all right? <laughs> He's speaking metaphorically, and they should have got it because Jesus had taught over and over, you know, take the, take the path of peace, nonviolence. And we know that they misunderstand because later, and we'll study it next week, one of them does pull out a sword and Jesus rebukes them in this moment. And there's no example in the early church of any 
follower of Jesus using violence for the progress of the gospel. So he's speaking metaphorically, but the disciples misunderstand. And the moment they hear swords, they start pulling weapons, brass knuckles. I mean, everything they've got, they're putting it on the table. And you know what it represents? It's just so simple. It represents the human tendency when we face something hard, when we face opposition, when we face rejection. If we're not careful, we'll be tempted to turn to worldly ways, worldly weapons. And Jesus says, I want you to trust me. Satan's agents will show up in the garden with swords. I want you to show up with faith and humility and weakness. That's the way of Jesus. Can I ask you to pull out your communion packet with me this morning? Because I, there's a direct line from this final saying and the moment we're about to enter into. I'm going to have the worship team come. Have you ever thought about, as you just take a moment and reflect on this moment that Jesus instituted, that Eric preached on so eloquently last summer? You know what? There's two words that I could use to capture this moment, power and rejection. You say, what is the most unbelievable unleashing of spiritual power that the world has ever seen? It is the humble, suffering, crucifixion and burial of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Think of the power that was unleashed through downward mobility <laughs> and rejection. And how did Jesus respond? He went his way. He went his way. And here we are, 2,000 years later, his people remembering that moment. Oh, how I pray, Jesus, you would show us your way in this world when it comes to these things. Will you pray with me about that and we'll worship together. Heavenly Father, as we prepare now to eat and drink, we're asking that as, you, as you, your church, River West Church, we would know your way. in the way we think of leadership, in the way we use power, in the way we deal with opposition in our world, we want to be like you, Lord Jesus. I pray that these next few moments would be moments of spiritual nourishment as we eat and drink. May it be the, the feeding of our souls with a reminder of your grace and your love, but also a reminder of your way. We need that reminder today. And so we thank you for it, Jesus. We love you. We want to follow you into this world. Pray together in your name. Everybody said, amen.